This Sunday finds us in an unusual position here at St. Peter's. We are, as you no doubt spotted by now, without a minister or local preacher, so the service is a local arrangement. That is a service run by members of the congregation. It's also unusual because, well, we're halfway between Christmas and Epiphany, between celebrating the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the wise figures from the East to pay homage, homage to the new king of the Jews. The author and journalist Dolly Alderton was asking only yesterday, do you leave your Christmas tree up for a New Year's Eve party? Christmas is over, and yet, we're not quite ready to dump the tree in the street, are we? We're experiencing what an anthropologist would call a liminal stage, which is to say we're halfway through a profoundly significant ritual, but not there yet. I'm not quite sure where to look or turn. During these liminal stages, in anthropology at least, hierarchies become fluid, and where there was once certainty, there is now doubt. Or to put it more simply, it's the time of year when school children forget what day of the week it is. I know mine certainly did this morning as they're incredibly jet-lagged. This liminal stage of our Christmas worship is perhaps a good opportunity to do something we tend not to do very much of these days and pass a critical eye over the nativity story. In the mad rush up to Christmas, filled with Advent services, school plays, office parties, and the dreaded round-robin letters received with Christmas cards from people we once knew 35 years ago, it's very easy to get swept up in the magic of Christmas in the traditions and rituals of the season without really pausing to think about what it is we're actually celebrating, how we're celebrating, and why. So I'd like to take a few minutes this morning on this liminal Sunday to examine a little bit of the nativity story and ask how much Arabic telephone might be relevant. And for those who aren't familiar with Arabic telephone, there may be a bit of congregational participation later on to explain the details. We're also, Tamara and myself, going to try to use the projector. So bear with us if it's a disaster. Let's start tomorrow then with the traditional nativity image. That looks about right, doesn't it? There's Mary and Joseph looking ecstatic with their new baby. There's the donkey, the sheep, the cow, the shepherds and the magi. We've got the stars and the straw and what appears here at least to be a nun. And this is the story we tell time and time again. When my eldest son was performing nativity here a couple of weeks ago, as one of the three wise kings, he took his place between the donkey and the lost snowflake. They were on a pier, we all recorded it on our phones to embarrassingly show it to them and their girlfriends and boyfriends when they're grown up. But what's wrong with this image? Now here's my first opportunity to call on children. Can any of our younger members of the church tell us what's wrong with this image? Okay. There was no donkey. 
The donkey isn't recorded in the Bible. It's there for Palm Sunday, when the grown-up Jesus rides into town on his back, but it's not for the nativity. What else isn't quite right with this depiction? Were the kings there? Did they go to see the baby in the stable because there was no room at the inn? Well, not according to Matthew. Matthew 2 verse 11 has the wise men entering the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. It's, of course, for convenience's sake, for the dramatic cohesion, for the pretty display outside the cathedral, that the three wise men are squeezed into the stable along with the parents, the shepherds, the cows and the sheep. If we look back through the history of art, we can see how these little reinterpretations, these tweaks to the story take hold. From this chap, who I photographed the other week, very modern interpretation, I think, there of what the king would be, through to Giotto's depiction, there we go, of the wise men kissing the baby's feet, then back to this rather charming Roman sarcophagus. Not that one, next one, sorry. Sorry, tomorrow. This is a Roman sarcophagus relief. It shows three, I think, rather pretty Roman boys. They're boy kings and their camels, and it's striking how each era throws its own veil over the figures. In this one? No, in, in our Roman sarcophagus, it does look like they're pointing at one of my mother's mince pies. The, uh... <laughs> okay, tomorrow. Well, we try, we try to use the technology. <laughs> I think it was Francis Massisi who first put together the forerunner of the modern nativity scene. With his emphasis on animals, it does rather fit, I think. And it's, it's just like Prince Albert, really, when he imported the Nordic Christmas tree. It's not strictly canonical. So no donkey in the stable, probably no kings, as they met Jesus in a house. What about the star that brought them there in the first place? Well, modern-day astrologers have been trying to work out what exactly was in the sky at the time of Jesus' birth. They've come up with a few possible solutions, but of course there are some problems and caveats. First off, we don't know for sure when Jesus was born. Due to an error by a church cleric hundreds of years later, the birth of Jesus was thought to be at least four years later than it really was. So today we know that the birth was no later than 4 BC, and it could even have been a bit earlier. It was certainly not on December the 25th. The Bible does not say, leaving us a few clues. But one clue we do have is the reference to the shepherds who are out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Something the scholars say was likely only done in the spring when lambs were born. Thus, the birth seems most likely to be in the spring, probably between 7 and 4 BC. I think December 25th, was probably a simple case of co-opting the existing festivals around the winter solstice and the ancient Roman midwinter Saturnalia that typically took place around that part of December and the celebration of the sun god Sol Invictus. The first recorded date of anything like Christmas being celebrated on December the 25th was 336 AD during the time of Constantine, the first Christian emperor, the source of Western Christianity, but for the most part, was pretty divorced from Christianity's eastern roots and the historical Jesus of Palestine. Was this all done to bring pagans into the fold? Or, arguably, 
it was moved to provide cover for persecuted Christians to worship safely. When everyone's trying to kill you, it's quite good to have your uh, celebration at the same time everyone else is partying, isn't it? Few astronomical records were kept at the time, except by the Chinese and the Koreans. They did record what might have been comets in 5 and possibly again in 4 BC. Halley's Comet was around at that time. The main problem here is that comets were generally regarded as omens of evil and bad fortune by the Chinese, also likely by the three wise men. Rather than follow such a cometary star, they would most likely have run very fast in the other direction. Another possibility is that the Christmas star was a nova or supernova, a previously unseen star that suddenly brightens in a big way. Indeed, one such star was recorded by the Chinese in the spring of 5 BC and was seen for more than two months. Unfortunately, its position in the constellation Copernicus means that it would likely never have been, uh, it was in the wrong position, it would never have led the three wise men in the manner implied in the Bible they'd have gone off in another direction again. For some, the star was not really a star at all, but a planet, Jupiter. Or more precisely, it was the conjunction or close meeting of Jupiter with two other planets, Saturn and Mars. Planets at that time were considered wandering stars to the ancients, and to many they bore great astronomical or mystical significance. Astronomers know that there was a series of such conjunctions in 6 and 5 BC, occurring in the constellation Pisces, the fish, and that's said by some to be the astrological sign of the Jews. It's worth bearing in mind later when the fish becomes that symbol of uh, Christianity. Maybe it's not just to do with the fishermen, maybe it's to do with this, this star sign. I think we should also consider a little point of translation when we look at the nativity story. Some scholars in our congregation may well know something uh, in Matthew's allusion to the, to the virgin conception. He was working from a proof text in Isaiah, translating the English Bible as, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So the Hebrew word translated as virgin is Alma, which means a young woman, but not necessarily a virgin. The great Greek Bible uh, translated for the benefit of the Jewish population of Alexandria in the 3rd century BC, AD, I beg your pardon, renders Alma by Parthenos, which primarily does mean virgin. So hence Matthew's translation of the original Hebrew gave the story this extra dimension. But maybe we can ponder if Matthew had been writing in Hebrew or Aramaic rather than Greek, the doctrine of the virgin conception might not have taken hold. And of course, there would have been no controversy concerning the perpetual virginity of Mary and no need for the story of Joseph being upset about Mary's pregnancy and considering divorce, perhaps. The virgin birth itself... <laughs> that's how I feel as well. The virgin birth itself, which was also influenced by other Middle Eastern traditions, isn't affirmed in all of the Gospels. Moreover, this was possibly necessitated by the editorial desire to fulfil prophecy, in this case a fulfilment of Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Our reading today of Jesus visiting the temple, 
I think we could see that as part of this great editorial decision to place Jesus in firmly in the Jewish context, in the Jewish tradition. And perhaps we can ask ourselves whether the emphasis on Mary being a virgin does the same. So what about taxation, the census that dragged poor Mary and Joseph all the way to Bethlehem from Nazareth? Doesn't this strike you as a bit implausible? How was this administered? Did this occur across the entire Roman Empire? Or was it specific to the Middle East? It's hard to find much historical proof in the preserved taxation records of the time that this actually happened. Could it be that this detail was added to explain why the holy couple were in Bethlehem at the time, in keeping with Jewish prophecy that the king of the Jews would be born there? Well, it could be, couldn't it? One bit of the nativity story that has fallen out of the modern-day performance seems to be the massacre of the innocents. I think I've probably bored quite a few already with my complaints about the removal of Herod from the school nativity in general. To me, it just seems a bit like Star Wars without Darth Vader. You know, this, this is one of the great villains of literature removed. It's not particularly palatable, not particularly PG certificate to include the detail that once the wise men did not return to Herod's court and tell him where to find Jesus, he had all the children under the age of two in Bethlehem killed. Did this really happen? Well, perhaps. Bethlehem was a tiny place at the time, with a population of roughly a thousand. So if we crunched the numbers, we'd be looking at around 20 children that would have been massacred. I think we don't have to look far beyond the massacres of children by Islamic State to confirm how easily that might have happened without an official record having been made. And it is in keeping with Herod's character. He went on to kill his wife and children because they were, he thought they were threatening his position as the Roman-imposed King of the Jews. But having spent several minutes debunking various parts of the Nativity story, we have to come to the crux of the matter. Does any of this really matter? Does it matter that the stories might be exaggerated or twisted or edited? In a way, we're playing a game of Chinese whispers, trying to find the truth behind it all. I think to me this morning, I would say what really matters is the truth of the gospel that Jesus preached. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, that is what really matters. The image of Jesus as a man of the poor, preaching to save all souls, preaching in remote Middle Eastern villages. The image of the lowly birth is to remind us that God came to us not as a regal figure sitting on a golden throne, but as the most ordinary, downtrodden of men. The grace is for all, not just those who sit at the top table. Pure, unadorned fact can often be a source of great disappointment, offering little encouragement or inspiration, and real history is broadly bleak and extremely bloody. It's in myth that people find the ideal, idealised visions and archetypes that most reverberate with our unconscious minds, as opposed to our logical processes. The power of the nativity narrative is in the power of imagery and mythology, and for us, well for me, faith, it doesn't really, for me, require historical corroboration. The story of the nativity 
in all its richness and profundity is not something anyone can intellectually justify believing in, but nor should anyone have to. As the great philosopher Simone Veal once argued, the mysteries of faith are degraded. The mysteries of faith are degraded if they are made into an object of affirmation and negation, when in reality they should be an object of contemplation. This shift from faith in or worship of the great mystery and the comforting story that early Christianity represented, the switch from that to the later dogmatic and sometimes violent assertion of doctrine or orthodoxy that characterises the less interesting side of Christianity, occurred, well, occurred when the church itself became an authority with a power base to protect and the need for expansion and domination and therefore more power. So we're talking about approximately 3rd century AD. But prior to that, the Jewish communities that Christian beliefs originated from, and then the earliest Christian communities themselves, were scattered, persecuted people, often slave classes or lower, and the original gospel stories provided comfort, hope for the future, in this life and the next, and a sense of self-worth and a sense of community. The letters of Paul could be said to have done the same to some extent. It didn't matter in the slightest whether the texts were historically accurate or not, as their legitimacy as history wasn't their purpose. Their purpose was uplift and inspiration and salvation. In some parts of the world, even today, it probably still serves those same purposes, especially where there is great poverty, oppression or persecution. Unfortunately, like all religions, as later co-opted by institutes and states, the texts were eventually separated from their original purpose and character once Christianity became an established religion and a system of control. To us today, how much does this matter? We can see it as a matter of faith, that we have to wrestle with doubt for that faith to be genuine. If we blindly believe in a story without questioning it, we aren't performing an act of faith. We're just taking it as fact. We aren't making the necessary choice to trust God. To question the details then of the nativity isn't to belittle them. It is to understand them more thoroughly, more seriously. And it's certainly not to take away anything from the central message of Christ's teaching to love one another. As I say, there is something of the game of Chinese whispers in all of this. And whilst there are plenty of twists and turns when we play Chinese whispers, it's somewhat ironic that the French name for the game, Arabic Telephone, is in itself very easy to understand. Both culturally sensitive names, aren't they? But Arabic Telephone and Chinese whispers are the same game. I think, this, I think what I'm trying to say is that there is no smoke without fire. There is something at the heart of these stories that has rung true and has been translated and mishandled, but ultimately there is this kernel of truth in there somewhere. And that is what has led to so many people for thousands of years following Jesus. That's what led to that early church surviving rather than folding, like, like so many Jewish, uh, well, cults, I suppose, is the word we use to describe those initial groups, that a lot of them just fell by the wayside, whereas the story of Jesus prospered. And I think we can only say that is because there is truth in there 
somewhere. Despite all the millennia of editing and tweaking, whether we believe in the supernova above Bethlehem, whether we believe Mary was really a virgin, the central truth of Jesus' life remains. He died for our sins, and he preached that we should love one another. Grace is available for all, and we are all, no matter where we are born or who attended the birth, we are all loved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, to lift you up after that, we've got the choir who are going to lead us with an anthem. 